This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures, specializing in top quality bird watching tours with experienced professional guides to over a hundred destinations around the world. The American Birding Association is proud to join Rock Jumper to offer an ABA tour to Tanzania in 2018. Join us for hundreds of birds, iconic mammals, and amazing culture and scenery. For more information, see rockjumper.com or events.aba.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I, I just want to start off by thanking those of you who stopped by the the ABA booth at the American Birding Expo in Philadelphia last weekend to say hello and share that you enjoy the podcast. It is a very weird thing to be recognized by your voice. It is, that was a new a new experience for me. So thanks for making me the focus of that very strange experience and thank you so much for for listening and stopping by and uh, saying hello Uh, i just want to spend a little bit of time right off the front talking about the hurricanes multiple hurricanes Uh, it has been long enough that we are starting to get some news from the islands in the caribbean that were hit by hurricanes irma and maria if you are following along you know that islands like barbuda dominica and puerto rico particularly were hit hard and along with all the the human suffering uh, a lot of birders were also concerned with the welfare of many of the endemic bird species on those islands now now that we're sort of a couple weeks out from the passage of those storms there's a little bit more to report the barbuda warbler a species found only on tiny Barbuda, and there was a lot of concern that Hurricane Irma's passage directly over that island could have been an extinction-level event for that species. It's only about 2,000 birds on the island. All of the residents, all the human residents of that island were evacuated, so the fate of the bird was unknown for several days, but representatives from Birds Caribbean were able to get on the island and find a few, not many, but a few Barbuda warblers that survived the storm a little bit, little glimmer of hope as the devastation on Barbuda was near complete. Uh, we will see how they continue to fare in the months, the years to come. Uh, the island of Dominica boasts two species of endemic Amazon parrot, the imperial parrot, and the red-necked parrot. The first is also called the uh, Cicero. Uh, Dominica was hit directly by Maria, and last I heard just the other day, the facilities that breed those parrots for wild release did come out okay. Uh, though no word yet on the wild birds as of the time that I'm recording this. And third, Puerto Rico took a direct hit from Maria. The human suffering is significant, but Puerto Rico parrot, the most famous and endangered of the Puerto Rican endemic birds, did survive, or at least the facility where the birds are held for release, as on Dominica, and captive breeding survived, though apparently El Yunque National Forest, the only national forest property in the United States that is a rainforest, uh, saw significant damage. Unfortunately, once again, time will tell uh, how those things come out. All this is a way of saying that the birds of the Caribbean and those who protect them need help, and we are excited to report that our friends from Wildside Nature Tours are stepping up. They've initiated a GoFundMe campaign. All of that money goes to Birds Caribbean, and it's not so much that the money goes to the birds, but it is actually going to the people who work hard to protect those birds, many all of whom have other priorities at the moment, understandably, and many are out of work. So it's critically important that they are able to deal with their immediate needs so that they can get back 
to their work helping birds and protecting bird habitats in the Caribbean. So if you want to help the people of Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, Birds Caribbean, this is a great way to do it. Wildside is matching every donation up to $10,000 until October 31st, which is very generous and guarantees that your money is helping people who are birders just like you and who need help desperately. The link is on the show notes. Please check that out. Pass it on. In this episode, I am joined by podcast stalwarts Greg Neese and Ted Floyd, both my colleagues at the ABA, and we are taking a broad look at how photography has changed birding. Has it changed been for the better? Uh, we'll talk about it right after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of September, first couple days of October 2017. Craziest bird of the period, uh, by all definitions, is without doubt the Eurasian Rhineck on San Clemente Island, which is in Los Angeles County, California, by closest point of land. A Rhineck is sort of a mythic ABA area vagrant, a Code 5. There's only one living record of this species prior to this one on Gamble in western Alaska in 2003, though it has been found dead before, including once in a shipping container in Indiana. And that is um, relevant to this bird, and I'll, I'll go ahead and touch the vagrant third rail here and throw out ship assistance as a mechanism for this bird to arrive here so close to the port of Long Beach. Regardless, that should not distract from the incredibleness of this bird, especially since the ABA Recording Standards and Ethics Committee does allow ship-assisted birds to count. It's arguably the most bizarre species of woodpecker. It's cryptic coloration and weird habits. It almost looks like the old world version of Putu, if you're familiar with the neotropic goat suckers that sort of look and act like broken off tree limbs. Uh, that's sort of what this bird does. And pending acceptance, it is a first record for California as well. Other first records of note, a short-tailed shearwater was photographed in Massachusetts for a state first there. It is only the third or fourth record in the Atlantic Ocean. And I want to give a shout out to Seabird McKeon, a guest on this podcast, episode 0115, who totally called this record. His prognostication powers are excellent. Uh, there have been a lot of magnificent frigate birds reported throughout the upper Midwest in the wake of Hurricane Irma's passage. They continue into the last couple weeks. Uh, one in Rowan County, Kentucky, represented a Kentucky first. We talked about a couple Tennessee firsts last time around, and we get to mention Tennessee again this time as the state's first crested caracara was seen along the Mississippi River in Dyer County. Uh, it was actually at the confluence of three states and was also seen in uh, Pemsicott County, Missouri and Mississippi County, Arkansas, where it was the second record for each of those states. And up in Colorado, not far from the ABA's old home in Colorado Springs, that state's first record of tropical kingbird was present. And interestingly, there was also a couches slash tropical type kingbird seen just this past week in the western part of the state. It would be the second record for either of those birds, depending on what it turns out being. That is only a short roundup of notable rare birds and the ABA area for the period. For the entire list, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. You also get up-to-the-minute information at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash ABA Rare. 
there's arguably no technological shift that has changed birding more in the last decade or so than the proliferation of cameras. Taking photos, sharing photos has become sort of synonymous with birding for a lot of us, and it's hard to remember a time now when that wasn't the case. Uh, we're going to talk sort of broadly about photography and the birding world with a couple American Birding Podcast regulars. I'm here with webmaster Greg Neese and birding magazine editor Ted Floyd, uh, two people who undoubtedly have some insight into this shift. Uh, thanks for joining me, guys. It's great to talk to you again. Good, good to see you. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Greg, I'll go ahead and start with you. Um, in a previous life, you were sort of a you were a professional photographer. What, in your opinion, has sort of driven this shift from only a handful of birders carrying a camera to to what it seems like every birder carrying a camera? Cost and availability, un- undoubtedly. There's around 2007, I think it was 2005. Uh, well, I, what I call the mini zooms kind of came on the market, and you could get a camera that uh, was, was essentially a point and shoot with a, with a big honking lens on it at a reasonable price and took pretty good pictures of birds. And people started going out, birders started carrying them. Then there wasn't really, there, there wasn't anything to do with them at that point. Uh, birders weren't really using social media. And uh, I don't wanna kinda get ahead of where we're at, but yeah, cost, cost and availability. I mean, when you think back to what, what film cost before that yeah <laughs> yeah no i and i re- i remember that you know i did i'd never used to carry a camera around and then all of a sudden my dad kind of introduced me to this little canon power shoot deal i mean it's the size of a credit card a little thicker and i started carrying that around and taking you know horrible photos of, of birds but um taking photos of birds and, and kind of holding on to them yeah, I mean, I remember that transition. You could just slip it in your pocket. It was really easy, and they're really easy to use, like like in idiot proof. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like to put it into perspective, um, in the '90s, I was I was traveling as a wildlife photographer, so I was spending a lot of time in South America and Central America. Film costs eclipsed travel costs by <laughs> three or four times yeah. usually. That's amazing to think about. Yeah. Ted, you you go through a ton of photos in your role as birding editor. Um, have you seen a change in the last decade in, in not only the quality of photos that you receive, but also sort of the number of photographers you can draw from regularly? I guess the short answer to that question is yes. Um, I, I've been on the job long enough to remember that, and we're talking about now 15, 16 years ago, that back in the old days, we really had just sort of a, a very small pool of, um, I would say, professional photographers. Uh, I'm happy to report that they're still alive and well and still contributing to the magazine. Uh, but sort of, I think, as, as Greg alluded to, uh, just about everybody now uh, has a, a, a decent, really even a high-quality camera, and uh, many really remarkable images are being captured by folks who, uh, you know, a decade or so ago would never have imagined themselves as photographers. So the answer is yes, absolutely, more photographers than ever. And I also think a, a greater diversity of images. By and large, we're seeing images that are maybe more sort of uh, action-based or reality-based capturing birds as they really appear in the field. We're seeing more images of birds doing things, engaging in behaviors, uh, f- flying, uh, f- feeding, and, and so forth that, than we used to. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems a lot easier now from my perspective. You know, I'm, I, I carry a camera like like so many of other, like so many birders do, and I, I don't consider myself a very good photographer. Sometimes I luck into a good shot, but it te- definitely carrying that camera, sort of the, the, the availability of film, you know, the cheapness of data as as compared to, to film cameras, as Greg says, certainly makes you willing to throw the camera up and try and take shots that um, maybe a film photographer 
15, even as recently as 15 years ago, wouldn't have done, might not have taken a, taken a chance at. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no question. Um, I, I now shoot everything that moves. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, when I was shooting film, you, you really, you have to be careful because it's, it's $11. It was $11 a roll. Mm -hmm. For, for film and processing for 36 frames. <laughs> now you can shoot off 36 frames in 10 seconds. Uh, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> well faster than a that. Second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what is, what is it about photography do you think is attractive to birders? You know, obviously we like to go out and find interesting things. Where do you think that transition has been made to capturing these interesting things that we see on film? Well, I, I think Ted and I see, see two different sides of this. I mean, Ted when uh, we talked about this uh, before we recorded, you were talking about storytelling. Yeah, I'll, I'll address that, that that briefly. In fact, I'll, I'll do it if you don't mind, sort of by way of a, an, an anecdote. Uh, I was briefly birding j just this morning. I had a little bit of time to kill in between errands, and I went out to my uh, one of my local patches here. And I was just reflecting on how 15 years ago, had I been out there, let's say, without a camera, uh, my goal would have been to find a quote-unquote good bird um, an un uncommon sandpiper or a uh, rare eastern warbler or something. And don't get me wrong, I'd still love to find such a bird, but I, I go out now really with a different objective in mind, which is to maybe instead of getting the bird, uh, getting the photo. And I this morning spent quite a bit of time with a belted kingfisher, which I now appreciate as a, a very difficult photo to get. It's one of the easiest birds to get. Kingfishers are big and loud and showy and easy to identify. Photographing a kingfisher is not so easy, but I did finally get a good photo of it. And I, I can imagine that, you know, if time allows later today, I'll post the photo online and tell a story about getting the bird and maybe just share a couple of my own insights and, and frustrations with that bird. So I think that's what Greg's getting at when he's talking about storytelling, uh, that, that taking a picture of a bird often involves a, a fair bit of a, a story. And it's something that with social media, with uh, with, with eBird, with uh, with Zeno Canto, with, with listservs, there's just so many ways to tell stories today. And I can imagine that this photo of a perfectly prosaic but very photogenic kingfisher i'll have a story to tell that i really wouldn't have had to tell 15 years ago and and i think also yeah social media social media has has really attracted people to sharing photos and sharing stories so um you know in 2007 when i started the illinois birders forum nobody was really doing this birders weren't really using facebook the illinois birders forum at one point was the most heavily trafficked birding website in the aba area and it was because people were sharing pictures and stories. And it started out with me and another guy um, who were taking pictures of birds on bird walks in Lincoln Park and just saying, look at all these birds we're photographing walking around Lincoln Park and telling the story of just what we're seeing on a morning's walk. So let's talk about, um, obviously, a, a place where, where photos have made an enormous difference is this idea of, of validating your sightings. I think a lot of us, when we first started, carrying a camera. I know when I did, um, I, I justified it to myself as, you know, I'm going to see something unusual. I want to be able to to get that documentation of it really quickly. Um, it's really come around and changed a lot of the way that bird records committees do their work. You know, suddenly, instead of getting these detailed reports of birds that people see, you get uh, two or three photos and that, that does the job for you. A picture's worth a thousand words, as they say. Yeah, the, descript the description field is see photos. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so um, 
I think that's really I think it's really opened up birding to a lot of people because so many people can can take a photo of a bird when maybe they weren't very good at describing a bird. So it's definitely made it easier to sort of build a reputation uh, in a community than than it was before. Has I have either of you seen that? Yeah, uh, definitely. And you know, just to touch upon the the documentation thing um, uh, in a in a different way, it's the number of of very beginning birders who are finding really good birds and not knowing it mm-hmm. is is really a fantastic thing. And um, again, that started happening right around 2007, eight, uh, when people just started picking up cameras and shooting whatever was moving in their backyard. And Greg was talking about beginning birders. I guess I want to make a shout out here for those of us who have been doing this for quite some time. I'm also struck by how much I'm learning from sort of after the fact evaluation and assessment of my own photos. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I was out birding this morning and I spent some time with a little flock of Spizella sparrows and uh, it was uh, composed of clay-colored and brewer sparrows. And, you know, those are birds that on the one hand, I feel like I've known very well for longer than many birders have been alive. On the other hand, I know that when I go to review those photos, I'm going to see some things on them that I just really can't have seen in the field and I'll I'll ponder them and and sort of reflect on them in ways that I couldn't have without a photo. I'll also say just sort of on a note of humility that I'm I'm struck by how often the photo shows something that is different from what I thought it was in the field. (laughs) Uh, I'm not saying that happened this morning, but uh, there have been many instances in which I realized that my uh, carefully honed powers of observation weren't quite as uh, strong and acute as I had thought that they were. And uh, photos are really and, and you know, taking photos, the whole matter of photography is really, I think, affecting the way that much more advanced birders are engaging themselves as well. Absolutely. I mean, how much more can you learn about uh, how could a bird from a still photo than you can learn from you know a ten second observation, where half the time the bird is obscured by by leaves or whatever? You know, you're you, you're able to kind of linger over the those certain field marks that maybe you'll be able to take forward and use the next time you see a bird. Absolutely. And there's also um, uh, a composite effect example. Uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I was five years ago, sorry, I was um, determined to find uh, a mew or a common gull in, uh, in Lake, on Lake Michigan. And I made the mission of photographing every single ring-billed gull in every plumage I could possibly find. And I now have hundreds upon hundreds of pictures of ring-billed gulls. And when you look at them as a composite and under, you really start to understand the plumage variations in, you know, first and second cycle ring build gulls. And, and I think that would, you know, go for any bird that you, that you wanted to study. I'll say that I have uh, absolutely no objection to what Greg just said. And I do that myself sometimes. I also maybe just to be a little uh, provocative here, want to say that there are those in the birding community names well known to all of us who I think do object to that form of birding. Uh, that's that it's not even birding. It's it's not field identification anymore. It may well be documentation. It may well be science. But that the uh, something about the the art of field identification has been lost. Now again, I am I'm just the messenger when I am I'm saying <laughs> that. But but I but I, I do consider it to be an, an interesting idea that we have have lost something, uh, some sort of a art or sort of a imponderable essence of the the uh, the, uh, the sort of whole nature of, of field identification with this uh, sort of after the fact uh, evaluation of our photos. I, I do what Greg does. I favor what Greg does. But I also just want to say that not everybody is on board. Hmm. 
I would think people that perhaps are technologically inclined to be able to listen to our podcast might find that might be more inclined to be the the shoot shoot first and ask questions later sort of school of birding as Mm. well. Well, I don't you know, I don't know that I don't know that that's necessarily a loss. I think that there's a gain involved as well, because as people spend more time trying to photograph birds, they also spend more time with them. The 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 learning process might take longer because people aren't really focused on the field identification as it traditionally was. But I do think, and and from what I've been seeing, especially in like the What's This Bird group on Facebook, there are people who I've now, in the two or three years that this has been going, that have been there weekly, and I see their skills improving. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really really see it happening in real time. You know, I've certainly felt like the the ability to to become a better birder, to grow as a birder, has almost democratized just the fact that there's so much information that is freely available now that you don't have to like sit at the knee of these of these birders who've been doing it for a long time anymore. I mean, those birders are putting this stuff online, and anyone who is interested in birds can can find it. And and photos are the same way. You know, uh, we look at sometimes I I feel like I look at more photos of birds than actual birds um, <laughs> these days. But yeah. um, but I, I we're, you're still we're still spending time with birds, as you say, Greg. We're still um, still you know taking that information in and kind of synthesizing with the information that we have uh, that we have learned in the field, uh, and that makes us all. I would argue better birders. Well, yeah, and and one other you know one other point is that very often identifying a still photo of a bird, especially a single still photo, can be way more difficult than identifying the bird in the field yeah, when it's in I front totally of you. Totally agree. Yeah. Just to play off that idea, I, I do think it's fair to say that over the years, and now in my case, I'm talking about over the the decades, you know, there has been a bit of a, a tension, if you will, between uh, birders and and photographers, and maybe it's come more from the, the birding angle of things, you know, that uh, there's something more holistic, more in the moment about being a birder and that being a photographer is somehow one-dimensional and I'll just tell you that having become a, a bir- uh, sorry a photographer myself of late in the past few years I sort of think of myself as a born-again photographer I've really come to oppose that idea of a attention or a dichotomy there I, I just feel that I'm paying more attention to birds and, and to other aspects of nature than ever before uh, I mentioned that kingfisher earlier and just something as simple as learning that a kingfisher is a very flighty and easily spooked bird uh, maybe everybody but me knows that but I really didn't notice that until I started to try to take photos of them. And something as simple as just maybe learning a little bit more about the personality of a bird, in this case, the the flightiness of a kingfisher, is something that really has been um, impressed upon me since becoming a photographer. Yeah, and, and I and there's a lot of common birds that uh, if I didn't have a camera, I might be inclined to, to pass by. I've had situations where, you know, I'll, I'll see dozens of blue-gray gnatcatchers on a certain trail at a local patch, and and maybe one will come down eye level and nice light, and I'll pause for a second and I'll try and you know get a few shots of that of that bird when I might have been inclined just to pass by, and I, I you know maybe embarrassed to admit it, but. I might have just moved on and, and looked for something quote unquote better than a blue gray gnat catcher. And and now I'm taking photos of it. I'm watching it as it moves through the through the brush. I'm waiting for it to come out and maybe do something interesting so I can get some photos. Um, I'm spending more time with that common bird. Well, and I think and I think that that people are are some collecting photos mm-hmm. the way that they collect ticks on a on a checklist. And thanks to eBird too for making that. Well, exactly. So now, now eBird, now eBird, <laughs> eBird has combined the two. So, <laughs> yeah. 
but uh, but yeah, I mean, people, there's a lot of birders that are going out and it's almost like Pixar, it didn't happen. For better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you. we talked last year, Greg, about Laura Keene's remarkable photo big year. Right. The fact that Laura went along and got photos of something like a ridiculously high percentage of the birds that she saw over the course of that year was as remarkable, if arguably more remarkable than the stuff that, that John had done. Yeah, I forget what her total was off the top of my head, and um, yeah, I'll be I'll be writing a, an article about that very soon um, for the ABA blog. But it was yeah, it was something like seven forty two or seven hundred and forty three species uh, in the ABA continental area that she got identifiable photographs of, and all the the if we look at all the birds that she documented. So, you know, she got a, a rough in Alaska that it took three pictures of to get an identification. You know, you look at one picture, you can't really tell it's a rough. But if you look at all three, definitely a rough. Add, the, add to that a couple of um, sound files. She documented 800 species in one year. It's crazy. So that, that gets to this sort of idea of the, you know, the treasure hunt aspect of it. Do you think that a lot of birders are sort of motivated? eBirds certainly you know, facilitates this, this, I don't want to say obsession, but interest in documenting every possible thing you can see. How is that changing birding? How is that changing the way we go about birding now? And is it, is it better? So I'll um, advance an idea here that may be a little bit, I don't want to say oppositional to Greg's, but just maybe a... I would expect nothing less. <laughs> just a little bit of a, 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 a different emphasis. And I sort of got at this a little bit earlier in the conversation. Uh, Come at me, bro. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't object to the, the, the treasure hunt uh, metaphor at all, but I'll say that the, um, the actual commodity itself, the, uh, the thing that is treasured, has changed. I hmm. b- back in the day, if I quote unquote got a uh, cerulean warbler, which is very rare where I live, or if I missed a cerulean warbler, you know that would be a real occasion of you know either you know elation or or distress. <laughs> um, today, if I'm just pointing the camera at a really beautiful but common organism that might not even be a bird. And I realized I left the battery in the car <laughs> or that the light is just perfect. I get the perfect image of a really common butterfly. Th- th- that's what I mean by that change in commodity. I-, I think that what I value has really changed as a result of using um, a-, a camera. And you, you mentioned the the example of your blue-gray gnat catcher mm-hmm. earlier. And, you know, again, I can't really put a, a monetary value on this. But but for me, you know, just the, the perfect photo of a blue Blue gray gnat catcher, which is common where I live as well, kind of has the same cachet, the same value, you know, that a, a rare eastern warbler might have for me 12 or 15 years ago. So, yes, the treasure hunt aspect is there. Yes, the kind of commodification of the of the resource is still there, but the uh, the, the currency has changed. And t- to me today, it's a it's a good photo. And I should also say, I sometimes you know, because I, I like making recordings, good good audio. And back in the day, it was sort of the uh, the, the rarity of the bird. So. Big picture, we agree. It's about a treasure hunt. It's about finding something that's quote unquote valuable. But the the nature of what's valuable has really shifted for me. And I, I'll just say it's it's, it's expanded. Um, a, a butterfly or a cricket uh, can be valuable for me in a way that twelve or fifteen years ago would have been just sort of a distraction for me. Yeah, and I and I and I think that the the uh, you know you talk about the commodity. I think that the 
the the physical takeaway the the photo or the collection of photos from the day to share on social media that's the treasure for a lot of people they they take pictures to share the pictures so do you think and here i'll get to the kind of the the big question do you think this is good for birding bad for birding neutral for birding um, do you think this sort of interest in in capturing good ph- photographs is is good on the whole for what we're trying to accomplish as a community to to grow the birding community and i'd say that you know at a, at its core that may be you know encouraging people to take an interest in interest in conversation of birds you know broadly you know if we get down to it is probably why we why we want birding to get bigger yeah so let me be anecdotal about this again if i post to Facebook or if I tweet to Twitter uh, documentation of some fairly boring looking, poorly composed photo of a rare bird, it's going to get very little in the way of likes and tweets and retweets and, and so forth. You know, that's just Ted being obscure, you know, getting into his, you know, his rare bird stuff. But if I just put up a beautiful photo of dirt common sandhill cranes flying against a sunrise or a beautiful butterfly you know perched just so at a flower that's what you know okay my stuff doesn't go viral but it comes as close to going viral as i'll ever get bird viral yeah bird bird viral well but but beyond bird viral it's also um sort of just all my non-birding friends as well uh Henslow Sparrow may mean a lot to you and me and Greg. It means almost nothing to the vast majority of my acquaintances, whereas a uh, really impactful photo of a beautiful butterfly or just an evocative recording of crickets or just a, a stunning sunset is the sort of thing that really gets attracts attention, that really gets noticed. So I, I would argue that this is very much uh, a favorable development in terms of broader outreach to folks who are, let's just say, either more more, um, sort of recent recruits to birding or folks who really aren't even birders at all, but maybe just have sort of a latent, latent bird friendly, bird bird curious, however you want to put it. Yeah. 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 Uh, And I'm really struck by that. I I also want to get to to something else, but I'll I'll say that maybe a little bit later, namely that I I think that this is sort of an improvement um, in the way that uh, those of us who have been birding for a long time are engaging in in the, the world of birds. I think it's improving. I'm going to agree. I'm going to agree with Ted. I'm going to have an anecdote from the other side. And that is uh, coming back to the What's This Bird group on Facebook. That group now has well over 20,000 members and it grows by hundreds every day. And it is a collection of some of the worst bird (laughs) photography you could ever (laughs) hope to find. I mean, the, the majority of the pictures are bad, but good number are truly, truly horrible and right on the edge of being identifiable. And there's thousands of people who browse this every day to see what these birds might be. I, I Yes, the, the beautiful picture of the sandhill cranes against the sunset, definitely. But I think there's a lot of interest in the other end. It's... Um, I think it's it's firing on all cylinders. And, and so, yes, I totally agree. Maybe it's sort of the same interest of people who are drawn to like the uh, the puzzle, the crossword puzzle or the Sudoku exactly. in their local newspaper. They they like the, the challenge of it. They like to see that there are people that maybe can draw out these little field marks and make something of these these terrible photos, as, as you say. Oh, absolutely. I, I know th- I know that there's a lot of lurkers in that group that that you know are are quietly identifying these birds, but waiting to see what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So Ted, you were saying, uh, how does this differ from the way that people may have approached 
approached birding in the past. You kind of led us, led us there. I, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say about that. And I'm going to really speak sort of just uh, only on my own behalf right here, and I, I hope that uh, this does uh, resonate with, with with others. But I'm just struck by how much more um, expansive, um, I think I used the word holistic earlier, my, my engagement of nature has become. And I make absolutely no apologies for being a, a list keeper and a, a desirer of rare birds. That is a part of me, and it will never be uh, banished from, from whom I am. But but I'm also just struck by how, whether it was a, the birding this morning or a, a bird festival that I was at during the past weekend, I, I just feel like I'm drinking more deeply of, of the natural world than I ever have before. I, I think that's a matter of objective fact that I know more about um, butterflies. I know more about cricket vocalizations. But when it comes to birds, I think I know more about molts and plumages. I know more about uh, geographic variation than I ever did before. And that's really coming from this very uh, sort of deep engagement of the natural world. And I will also say an engagement that is more um, uh, group-based, more gregarious than, than ever before. Uh, during the bird festival that I attended last week, and we actually conducted a little exercise where we considered the question of how often we actually go birding by ourselves. And the, the answer, which we documented statistically, is that we actually go birding in groups more than ever before. And I think that's a really welcome change. We're sort of uh, learning things to, to, uh, together. We're sharing, we're, we're, we're teaching, uh, and, and that's a really welcome development. So I, I, I do feel that our whole engagement of, of birding, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I think I'm speaking on behalf of the community, has just become a, again, a more expansive, uh, a broader-based appreciation and, and wonder for the natural world than it had been pre-camera. Thanks so much, uh, Greg and Ted. It was a real pleasure talking to you about this. Greg Neese, webmaster for the ABA, Ted Floyd, Birding Magazine editor. Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, talk to you soon. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. It was great to talk to so many podcast listeners at the American Birding Expo. Thanks for your kind comments and support. Even if you didn't attend the expo, you can help support the podcast by becoming a member of the ABA. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. Special thanks to Gary Weiner of Centennial, Colorado, and Edward Riley and Kate Wofford of Minneapolis, Minnesota. All joined the ABA recently. They noted that the podcast was a reason. Thanks and welcome to the ABA. If you've made it this far, perhaps I could convince you to go a bit further and leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your comments help make this show better and help get our name out there. Thank you for that. Executive producer and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. We are online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the American Badminton Association, the one and only ABA for learning about birdies, but absolutely the wrong ABA for learning about birds. I was I was perusing their magazine the other day, birdieing, of course. It's very ad-heavy. The whole organization seems like a bit of a racket. Uh, question comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>